Good morning, everybody. If you want to go ahead and open up, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. We're going getting towards the, the end of this boy here. We're going to we're going to finish out chapter 8 today, so we'll, we'll start in verse 40 and go through the end of the chapter if you want to read along, which I highly encourage that you do. Um, man, I just, I, I, when we were doing the kids verse this morning, I had to go and just stick it in here. The, the, it's First Chronicles 29.12, I think it's B, it's the last half of that, which says, Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion people are made great and given strength. Man, what a word for us. Bethany, what is the... I, I don't know if she's in here. What's the theme for this week? I didn't, I missed it. Is it you? Huh? Say it again, Luke. Jesus has power to heal. Uh, that is uh, going to be real appropriate for today because today's message is Jesus' authority, power over sickness and death. Man, over the last two weeks, we have covered passages that, that Luke shares, and I've shared this with you already, but he wants us to understand the authority of Jesus. In the first story that we read, Three weeks or two weeks ago, Jesus set sail with the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And while they're sailing, a storm blows in with such severity that the disciples are afraid that they are going to die. While this is happening, Jesus is asleep. So they, they wake him up, and with only his words, Jesus calms the storm. And this showed Jesus' authority over nature. And I talked about how in this specific context among these Jewish men and the cultural belief that they held, they believed that only God was able to tame the sea. And so for Jesus to speak this out in the sea to respond to his command highlights for them and concretes in their minds that he is the son of God. And, and as you read a story like that and you hear those details, you think, well then, all right, book closed, done, they got it, right? But they still didn't quite understand the extent of his sonship and his power. And so in the second passage is where they land in the area of the Gerasenes. And as they land on shore, this man that's possessed by demons runs down and he acknowledges Jesus by name. And remember, at the end of the passage prior, after Jesus calms the storm, they look at one another and they say, who is this man? And then they land on shore. This demon-possessed man comes down. He calls Jesus by name. He calls him the Son of the Most High God. The same name that Gabriel used to describe Jesus whenever he was telling Mary that she would have this son. So this possessed man was well known in the area. People knew that he was demon possessed. He lived among the tombs and he had been bound many times with chains and shackles. And yet every time he was able to break those bindings. And here we see that Jesus has a power and authority over this man as well. And the demon recognizes Jesus. He recognizes his power. He recognizes his authority and requests that Jesus would send them into the pigs rather than sending them into the, uh, the abyss. Jesus grants their wish and then the pigs run off into the ocean and drown. And then these herdsmen who are responsible for these pigs run to the village to tell everybody what's happened. So the villagers come out and when they arrive they see this formerly possessed man sitting there in his right mind fully clothed having conversations. And this entire sequence of events are here to reveal to the disciples that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has complete authority. Now they've discovered over nature and now also over the spiritual realm. In both of these stories, Luke shows us different aspects of Jesus' authority to make the case that Jesus is is the Son of God. That is what he's trying to help us. It's what he's trying to help Theopolis understand. It's what he's trying to let the Gentile world understand. 
And these experiences also gave the disciples and the church insight into what it means to be disciple makers and how we help the world to understand these truths about God. And we'll talk more about that as we wrap up these ideas at the end of today's message. Today's passage is the final story in this section of Luke, and it will reveal Jesus' authority over both sickness and death. And just like we've done in the last two weeks, we're going to examine the miracles and then look at the underlying truths that they reveal about the person of Jesus. So join me and let's read Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. It says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus came. He was the leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house. Because they had only, had only a daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him in the presence of all the people. She declared the reason that she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And when Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, Stop crying, because she is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, because they knew that she was dead. So he took her up by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. In this passage, there are two stories that are intertwined with one another in some interesting ways. As I read this a couple of months ago, and then also this week, something significant stands out to me, and it's, it's point number one for today's message. There's only two points. Point number one is that a person's life is never too messed up for Jesus. We've talked about this a lot in the past, but it is a message that we need to share with ourselves, and it's one that we need to share with everyone that we meet. There is this notion in today's world that we need to, quote-unquote, clean up our lives before we can have a relationship with Jesus. And this couldn't be further from the truth. Luke opens up this section with... Uh, Jesus and his disciples returning from the Gerasene area, and they receive a very warm welcome, right? Upon their arrival, one of the synagogue leaders finds Jesus, and he begs Jesus to come and to heal his daughter because she is about to die. This information sheds a lot of light on the relationship between Jesus and the people. I don't know about you, but for most of my life, I viewed the religious leaders as the enemies of Jesus. And while some of them are, it's obvious through the telling of this story that not all of them felt that way. This man had obviously heard of Jesus and some of the things that he had done from other people. And that knowledge gave him enough faith to go seek out Jesus' help. And Jesus begins to head that way. He says, yes, I will come and take care of her. 
Interestingly, these two stories are connected because of the issue of ceremonial cleanliness. We've talked about this ceremonial cleanliness a few times before in this study. Kerry covered it when he preached about Jesus' birth. And it's also mentioned um, when the Roman official sent his messenger to heal his son. The kid's story was on that today. Didn't know that was in there. Okay, The reason that the, the Roman guard or, or centurion sent someone on his behalf is because for Jesus to enter his house would make him ceremonially unclean. And while we don't often think about that cleanliness in the same way the ancient world did, a small piece of this belief still lingers in the back of our minds. Before Jesus, we all know that your personal righteousness and cleanliness determined your standing with God. So it begs the question, what does this mean? What did it mean for them to be clean or unclean? I put in your handouts and on the screen a definition from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. It says it designates states of ritual suitability or unsuitability before God closely related to the state of holy and profane often used to denote a state of righteousness used in regard to physical state behaviors and animals the synagogue leader would not only have known what it took to be clean what was required but he would also have had the means and the motive to ensure that both he and his family were cleansed and then therefore presentable to God. And this contrast with the next character in our story, the woman with a bleeding issue. And while Luke doesn't tell us explicitly what has caused her bleeding, it's widely believed that this was a gynecological problem. If that were in fact the case, she would have been ceremonially unclean for the past 12 years. And I want to unpack for a minute what that might mean. There's social implications that come with that condition. Not only did she have to deal with the physical symptoms, but there's also the embarrassment that she would have received as people judged her. Even more profoundly, it was very likely that people would not associate with her because she was quote-unquote unclean. If someone were to touch her, then when she was unclean, which she was for 12 years, they would have also been made unclean. Again, the, the Lexham Bible Dictionary tells us that those who touched the unclean object or person had to wash their clothing, bathe, and remain unclean until evening, with a few exceptions that are found in Leviticus. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to have lived for 12 years with extremely limited or possibly no physical contact with another person. 12 years, that's longer than we have existed here to have people not want to touch you. When this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, she is seeking much more than simply physical healing. To be healed would completely revolutionize her entire life. Luke is revealing a new reality that, God, that God's people are experiencing. And that is that Jesus is the cure for uncleanliness. Again, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says, Although the Old Testament and New Testament agree about what causes uncleanliness, the New Testament Gospels transform the cure. In the Old Testament, unclean people were required to perform a purification act and await a period of time. In the New Testament, Jesus touched the unclean personally to cleanse and purify them, illustrating that Jesus holds the power to transform the lives of individuals. Jesus holds the power to transform the lives of individuals. Think about that statement for a minute. 
and what that means. That Jesus holds the power to transform the lives of individuals. Jesus is changing everything, not just this woman's life. Through his life and ministry in the world, he is changing how we are able to approach God. Now think about this statement in the context of what we have discussed about people's perception of what they must do to clean up their lives before they start a relationship with God. This is the message that God, through his son Jesus and this gospel, that we are charged to proclaim that Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to be able to be clean, to approach God. Consider how many church people that you may know that don't fully understand this concept, that have been to church their whole life. Many of us have been those people who spent our entire lives trying to fix ourselves so that we would be acceptable to God, only to find out later that that's not true. It's not how it works. This woman did nothing to be made clean, except that she reached out to Jesus. We're talking about God's grace and what He is pouring out on His people through His Son, Jesus. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that is granted to us through the work of Jesus. God sent Jesus to fix the problem of sin by making us clean, and in doing so, making us righteous before God. You have heard people say it before, that when we receive salvation, when God looks at us, He no longer sees our imperfection, but the perfection of Christ. He is the one making us clean. It is not based on anything that we can do, but solely on Jesus' work. Look with me again at Jesus' response to the interaction and what it cost this woman. Picking up in verse 43. This is a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any. Approached from behind and touched the end of his robe and instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, she asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, crowds are hemming in around you and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him in the presence of all the people. And she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Pause for a moment. This is the part of the story where we think, oh no, she's about to be in trouble. But look at Jesus' response. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what, what saved this money, this woman? Was it all the money that she spent on doctors trying to fix the problem? No. Was it, was it all the work that she put into fixing herself? No. It was her faith. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this woman's life will never be the same after this encounter with Jesus. Physically, she is healed. Emotionally, she is healed. Socially, she is healed. Jesus did not take care of just one of her problems. He revolutionized her life. He changed everything for her. Literally, everything was different because of what Jesus did for her. But then something else happens in our story. In just these few moments, the, over the course of this very short conversation between Jesus and the disciples and this woman, the daughter of Jairus dies. However, Jesus was not done that day. There was more that God wanted to reveal to his people. So look at verse 49 through 56 with me again so that it's fresh. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, 
Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him. He said, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once and then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Point number two for today is that God never overlooks anyone. It's easy to see how Jairus may have felt when he got the news. If only Jesus had hurried. If only he had ignored what happened when the woman touched him. He must have been devastated, brokenhearted, felt insignificant. But Jesus, he puts this unclean woman ahead of his daughter. I can only imagine the emotion that must be coming from him. I had a friend um, who lives in Mexico. He's a minister there. And he once told us when we were on a trip, he said, you know, I'm often late, but I'm never so late that someone has died. Right? I think the joke is hilarious. And it's hilarious because it points out the obvious. If Jesus had just moved faster, Jairus' daughter would still be alive. While going to meet one need, Jesus pauses momentarily to take care of another. In verse 49, it says, while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. One of the commentaries I read this week points out that the messenger must not have heard of all that Jesus had done. He says, don't bother her. Don't bother the teacher anymore. This must be understood as a further indication that the daughter had died. The messenger had a limited view of Jesus' power and thought if the daughter were still alive, Jesus might be able to help. But no one can bring the dead back to life. Therefore, it makes no sense to trouble Jesus about this. They had a limited view of Jesus' power affecting what they believed could be done. We talked about this last week when we were considering how the villagers responded to Jesus freeing this demon-possessed man. But I don't think we consider the effect of not knowing Jesus, what effect that has on people's ability to comprehend what we can do. The messenger and the family lost all hope because they did not know the authority and the power that Jesus had over death. This same kind of limited view affects nearly every person in our families, in our work, in our neighborhoods. I was thinking about it this week and I did some research. Um, I read an article that was published by the Smithsonian Magazine about the public's initial response to the Wright brothers' flying machine. I want you to put yourself back in, these, in their shoes, early 1900s, okay? We're, we're all familiar with an airplane, right? Raise your hand if you've ever seen one fly in the air. Okay, put them down. Raise your hand if you've ever flown in an airplane while it was in the air. Okay, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you've ever piloted an airplane while it was in the air. Yes, I got that one. <laughs> Imagine what it must have been like when it was first invented, right? You hear rumors. Hey, the Wright brothers, you know those bicycle guys? They made a machine that will fly. <laughs> right, okay, good one. That's a funny joke. Most people were skeptical until they saw it, thinking, like, how could this be? A machine that can float in the air? Really? That's not possible. 
On February 10th, 1906, the New York Herald put it bluntly. The Wrights have flown or they have not flown. They possess a machine or they do not possess one. They are, in fact, either flyers or liars. That's a good, that's a good title. That captures the skepticism pretty well, doesn't it? But when they flew for the public, Wilbur first, on August 8th, 1908, in Le Mans, France... The press reports were breathless. I have seen him. I have seen them. There is no doubt Wilbur and Orville Wright have well and truly flown. It wasn't until people saw it with their own eyes that they could believe that it was possible. Going back to our story for today, this same kind of skepticism existed in this moment with Jesus and Jarius, and his daughter, and his family. But church, it most certainly exists in today's time regarding what Jesus can and cannot do. Obviously, this messenger, the father, and the mother, had not heard that Jesus had raised the widow's son from, back to life. The widow that was from Nan that Carrie preached on a while back. Obviously, they had not heard that story. Therefore, it never crossed their minds that anything could be done for their daughter. And this is where the church plays a vital role in helping develop people's understanding of Jesus. If a person has never had Jesus stand in their defense, never had Jesus provide for them, never had Jesus protect them or comfort them, or the list could go on and go on and go on, it's quite possible that they don't know that those things are possible. I shared with you guys earlier, my friend this week, we'd been praying about a thing and then God did the thing and he didn't see that it was God doing the thing. And my role in that relationship was go, hey, dude, remember we asked God to do the thing? He did the thing. And the guy went, oh my goodness. Everything changed in that moment because now he has seen it with his own eyes. If you've ever experienced anything of God, you have the unique opportunity to share that story and expand their view of Jesus. Look again at how Jesus responds to the news that she's died. So when Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. And after he came to the house, he let no one enter except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, Stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. So let, let's talk about this for just a moment. What did Jesus mean, she's not dead, but asleep? The commentary says it was not a denial that the girl was dead, but a recognition that the girl's death was like sleep of limited duration. He says that Jesus' statement is prognosis, not diagnosis. From their vantage point, from the mother and the father and the family, death was permanent. Because they could not comprehend how anything else could be possible. This statement, when Jesus says she's not dead but asleep, caused them to laugh. Just like I'm sure people laughed when Orville Wright said, hey, we made a machine that flies. And they're like, good one, funny. Right? I want you to see that there is no rebuke from Jesus here. He does not chastise them because they don't believe. He did not ridicule them. He loved them right in the middle of their lack of understanding. And then he did the unimaginable. Verse 54 and 55. So he took 
her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned. She got up at once, and they gave orders that she be given something to eat. I didn't write this in there, but I want us to understand that the order that he gave them something to eat is significant because it proved that she was not a spirit, that she was alive. If you remember when Jesus was proving that he had risen from the dead, what did he do with the disciples on the beach? He ate with them. The language here is a bit tricky, and it's confusing that Jesus would say that she's asleep instead of, I'm going to raise her from the dead. And I want us to see how uh, this commentator works this out. He explains she's not dead but sleeping. Some feel that this was to be taken literally and think that Jesus' diagnosis led him to the conclusion that the girl was in fact alive. This, however, is hard to reconcile with Luke's express statement, knowing, not thinking, that she was dead, and with his later words, her spirit returned. It is better to see the word as meaning that what is death to people is no more than sleep to Jesus. I want us to remember, Luke's a doctor. If he wanted to describe this story in a way that said that she was only asleep, not dead, he would have used that kind of language. Once again... We see Jesus doing what only He can do. He is proving that He is the Son of God. He calmed the storm on the sea. He cast out a legion of demons. He healed a woman from a bleeding disorder. And now He has raised a girl back to life. If there was any doubt in the disciples' minds about who Jesus was and what He could do, that doubt was gone. We'll dive into this next week as we see Jesus send the disciples out. But let's talk for a minute about what this means for you and I. What do we do with this information? I want us to understand that all of us have areas of our lives that are messy, right? We had a little bit of that this morning with a foster child trying to figure out where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do, right? It's okay. Our lives are not polished. They're not always presentable. And literally everyone has that. Raise your hand if you've ever found out that someone's coming to your house unexpectedly and you rush around cleaning up your house, right? Everyone does that because in our minds, things have got to be just right. All of us have that experience. Our areas of messed up are going to be different from other people's. Mine are going to be different from yours. But the point is, is that we all have it. And just like in our passage today with the woman that was healed, Sometimes the messiness is something that's completely outside of our control. If my house isn't picked up, it's because I didn't pick it up. If I have a a disorder, I, I didn't cause that. And I can't control it. Church, we have a message to share that can set people free from the burdens that they often are needlessly carrying on their own. As we develop relationships with people i want us one of one of two things to come out of our mouths one that jesus loves us in the middle of our mess bethany does a great job of this and our team does on wednesday nights of of teaching the kids jesus loves you exactly how you are you don't have to get right our number one goal on wednesday nights is to teach these kids that jesus loves you no matter what church we need to internalize that for ourselves And it is a message that we can share with everybody that we run into. As we develop those relationships with people, start by letting the curtain down and acknowledging that all of us have messiness in our lives and that Jesus loves us anyway. Doing so are going to change how people see you, but more importantly, they're going to change how they see Jesus. Share the grace that you have received from Jesus and how it has changed your life and your desires. And then, 
be willing to get in the middle of their mess with them just like Jesus does so that he can do what only he can do. Doing so will organically lead to the second thing that Jesus does in this passage. We can tell people that God isn't just ignoring them or overlooking them because let's be honest. When people are going through really difficult things, they often feel like God can't see them or God is choosing not to see them. But church, we can't just tell them that they're not being overlooked. We have to show them as God's agents of love in this world, we cannot overlook other people. If we get involved in what's going on in our lives, we can help them see God, just like I was able to do with my friend this week. In church, I'm going to keep repeating this passage until we really get it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth, glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You, the people sitting around you, myself, we are God's plan for helping this community to experience Jesus' power and authority over all things. This is not someone else's job. God has called us, these specific people, to this specific place for this specific time. Over the next three weeks, we're going to see Jesus send out the 12 disciples to do the very thing that God is calling us to do. Jesus is going to give them the same power and authority and then send them to proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm going to scroll back up to the top because I want to read you our kids' verse. That power and might are in your hand. And at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. The power that we need does not come for us. The message that we need to share does not come from us. We and ourselves have nothing that can change the lives of the people in our community. But Jesus has everything. And His desire is for each of us individually to pursue Him to that call. To answer the call and say, Jesus, I am here. I am willing. What would you have me do? Jesus is going to give you and I the same power and authority that he gives his disciples. We're going to talk more about that next week. In the same way that Jesus revolutionized the lives of the woman and the family in this story, Jesus wants to revolutionize our lives and the lives of the people that are around us. That's going to be in the McKithen community. It's going to be in your personal neighborhood. It's going to be in the places you work. It's going to be in the places you play. But God's desire is that we don't hold this incredible message to ourselves, but that we share it with people. The grace that we have discovered that allows us to look at the messiness in our own lives and say, And to not just say, but to know internally in our inner beings that Jesus loves me in the middle of my mess. The world needs that message. And we are God's plan to share that message. God has stepped into your messiness and made you feel seen and know that you are loved. Allow God to work through you so that other people can experience the same thing. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think about the message that you have for us, as we think about the things that you have done for us, the love that you have poured out upon us, Father, I ask that that would be our motivation, that the love that you have poured out on us, that we would be filled with a desire to share that love, to not hold it in for ourselves. 
God, the very last thing that any of us want is for us to just do stuff for the sake of doing it. God, I am asking, I am pleading on my own behalf and on behalf of our body that you would put the desires in us to share this gospel message with the people in our lives. Father, I ask that you would open doors for us in this community. God, I ask that you would point us to the people that you are already working in their lives so that we can establish relationships with them that have deep, meaningful bonds. Father, I ask that you would speak to each of us individually to share with us the call that you have for us personally. Father, I ask that you would pour out your love on this community. Jesus, I ask all of this in your name and for your glory and for your honor. Amen.